Father, as we enter the life of of Isaac, uh, we pray that you would lead us today. Uh, this passage is a, is an interesting story uh, at at surface level. Uh, there's not a whole lot there, uh, but there is these huge themes that we know through the the uh, New Testament and throughout the Scriptures that. Uh, today's story is really the beginning of these uh, two nations of of Edom and, and Israel and, and the, the strains that they would have and your choosing and man's stupid choices all sort of uh, commingled with one another. And we pray, Father, that as we navigate this passage, that ultimately, Lord, you would show us uh, what you would have us to learn, that we would draw closer to you, that we would um, seek you in our lives, that we would trust you. Uh, through difficulties, and that you would just help us, Lord, uh, to walk with you all the days of our life. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 25, starting at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled, struggled together within her, and she said... If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment. It's a wonderful description of a child. And they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Jacob was 60 years old when when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And Father, we do uh, thank you and praise you for this day. We ask that you would lead us now uh, through this story. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so last week we sort of re-entered Genesis by looking at verses 19 through 20. In those verses, uh, we read, now these are the records of the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, uh, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean to be his wife. So we're told that now we, we've transitioned in Genesis um, 
Previously, back in verse 8, we see that Abraham breathed his last breath um, at a ripe old age. He was satisfied with, with life, and he was gathered to his people. Uh, the story and its sort of its unfolding can lead you sort of astray. Um, for the purpose of Genesis, Abraham is in past tense. Now we're looking at Isaac. But the reality is, is if you do the math of like how old Abraham was when Isaac was born, and then how old uh, Isaac was when his kids were born, we see that actually Abraham would live for another 35 years after the story. So he actually died, if my math is correct, when the two twins that are born in this story were about 15 years old. But for the purpose of Genesis, Genesis has is following a new thread of the next sort of patriarch, that it's about the life of Isaac during this period. And so uh, last week we looked at the story of, of Isaac and Rebekah getting married. It's this beautiful tale of the servant going to, the, to Abraham's uh, brother's family to find a wife. He identifies this perfect young lady. They come back. They see each other. They fall in love. They go to the tent. And this is where we pick up the story. And right away we're, we are introduced to a problem. I, I, I mean, it's literally... They went in, they got married, they're happy. We're introducing Isaac. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. It's like, uh-oh, we're going to have this story again? Uh, for those of you that weren't with us, we'll remind you of Isaac's dad, Abraham. They had a similar situation. Uh, they could not have a child. And, and so we are immediately gripped with sort of, is Isaac going to go down the same path that his dad went down? His mom and dad, are they going to run ahead and take matters into their own hands. Remember, Sarah had said, hey, I can't get pregnant. Go ahead in order to fulfill God's plan. Let's do it your, like our way, and we'll find a lady that you can impregnate. She can have a kid. It, the story didn't go well. Um, and so we're faced right away, like Isaac prayed, and, and he, he can't, they can't conceive children. And this is like a huge point of like frustration, concerned not just that they couldn't have kids, but the Abrahamic covenant still rested on them, and all of the promises that God had delivered to them would come through Isaac. And if they can't have a child, then what are they going to do? And I wonder, we don't know, did Abraham sit his son down and say, hey, listen, God is faithful. You can trust him. He made these promises. We went through all of this. You can just, like, you can rely on him. And the author doesn't give us time to like even really, like I took the time to kind of play this out about what he's going through. But the writer of Genesis, Moses, uh, doesn't even give us the, the time to do that because immediately he says that the Lord answered him and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. So it just is like he prayed, she gets pregnant, the story moves on. Um, before we get into the second half, I do think that there's some some points of application that I think that Isaac has learned from his dad's mistakes, probably um, that you can trust God, that you can pause and just, just go to God, seek him, lean on him, pray for your spouse and trust him to deliver what he promised that he would deliver. And you could just quickly read over this. Isaac prayed, God answered. Boom. That's how we like things to go, right? I got a, I got a crisis. Lord, help me. 
boom, there it is. Paycheck just came in or something came in. All my problems are solved. God didn't let me suffer over the whole thing. But if we were to shoot on down to verse 26, and there we would read that Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Previously, we learned that Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. So I went to public school, but I can do this math. (laughs) That's 20 years. I know Melanie always shoots me daggers when I say that. 20 years, like in this, in this one verse, 20 years have elapsed. Isaac is praying to the Lord, Lord, my wife is barren. All of these promises like depend on her having a son. There, I can only imagine the pain, sorrow, turmoil, uh, lack of faith, doubt that he had through these 20 years. But, but evidently, he just stayed faithful, and he was trusting, and that God delivered. So by the time the scriptures come to us, it's just simply like this quick little blurb, like, oh, she was barren, Isaac prayed, God delivered. And it's, there's something beautiful about this. I think that there's something that God does in our hearts and our souls that when we're under like immense pressure, where we can't take it, and all we can do is like seek him to help us and to guide us through this. Uh, I'm sure so much more happened, but as far as the scripture is concerned, it was like Isaac was just a faithful man. He was going through pressure. His wife couldn't get pregnant. He was resolute in his determination just to seek God and to allow God to do his work. And so he prayed, he delivered, but it was 20 years. And verse 22, then the struggle begins. Uh, This is our first mention of twins in the Bible that I'm aware of. Uh, But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why am I this way? And you have to remember, there's no ultrasounds. There's no, uh, I don't even know what it's called, but like now it's getting further and further away from my memory. But there are like these mile markers when you have a baby that are like before the ultrasound. No, I say when you have a baby, like when your spouse has a baby. Like I didn't actually have the baby. Um, just, I just want to be clear. I was never pregnant. Um, I never threw up from morning sickness. Um, but like when they do the little thingamajigger where you can hear the heartbeat, like I don't know what it is, like a microphone or I don't know. They like, oh, a, a what? Oh, a Doppler, like a little storm system. Yeah, like so a little, little Doppler and you hear the whoosh, 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 whoosh. Well, in this case, it was a storm system developing. So there's like, there's nothing. Like, it's really cool. Like, I remember the first time, it's like you put your hand to the belly and you feel like the little, like, punch. Like, I remember Grace doing that number. And then I'd be, like, shaking her. I'm like, hey, kiddo. And then I was like, what are you doing? And now the kid's, like, awake. And But this is, like, not just one kid. There's, like, two kids going to, like, fisticuffs in the belly. And she's like, what is happening to me? Like, uh, like certainly, like, animals, I, I, my... My assumption is that there were twins before this. I don't know. Like maybe animals. Well, we know that animals have multiple babies when they give birth. But like what's she thinking? Like is she thinking, like aware that there could be two children within her? Like is this even on her radar? She just knows that she's miserable. And it's like, well, if God's answering our prayers, then why is this so horrible? Like what's, what is going on? And so then we're told that she went and she inquired of the Lord. And she basically, hey, God, what's going on? And I love this, that 
that what we see in Isaac and Rebecca through this is that they have this relationship with God. There's a problem, Isaac's praying. Now there's another problem. Now Rebecca is inquiring of the Lord. They're seeking him. Hey, what's going on? And then in verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body and the one people shall be stronger than the other and, and the older shall serve the younger. So right away, God hits her with something that's like bigger than actually the situation that's in her belly. Saying you have, you have uh, two babies within you. But these aren't just babies. These are the, the fathers of these two nations that will come to be. Uh, within her would be the nation of Israel and then the nation of Edom. And these, these nations would be at, at really like it, it I, I don't want to say outright war with one another. There'd be conflict with one another. Uh, God instructed the nation of Israel not to hate Edom because they were related to one another. But this tension was always there. Uh, at the time of writing or the time that Israel would receive this, it would come at the hand of, of Moses as they're entering uh, back into the promised land, coming out of slavery, and the Edomites were like the, their main source of friction. And so the people of Israel are being reminded that what they see and the struggles they're going through, that there's more to the story than meets the eye, that it's so much bigger than what they were experiencing. The struggle would go on all the way to Herod the Great, if you remember him at the birth of Jesus. Remember the guy that wanted to kill all of the babies? Uh, he was an Edomite. And basically following King Herod or Herod the Great, uh, the, the Edomite people would basically be lost from history. Like they would sort of fade into nothingness. But God gives this prophecy that in your womb, and it's interesting to me, this was not planned, but today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, or it's, it's always like this week or the next week. But here we come to this passage, and the, the Bible makes it very clear that in the womb, it's a child. Like, this isn't some uh, fetus or some abnormal thing. This, this is at conception. God always refers to the child in the womb as a child, that these are future nations within you. Um, and so there's, there's tension here. And so on the one hand... If you just read verse 23, it just looks like um, God is sort of prophesying or showing her what the future would sort of unfold. If you go to Romans, which we're not going to go there right now, but if you go to Romans, Romans in chapter 9 reflects on this incident as God's choice of, of one over the other, which... Again, like last week, it, 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 it sort of pickles our minds between these, these, two, these two things that just seem to be not compatible with one another, that you have the sovereignty of God and his choices, his decisions, and his making things come about, coupled with, as we read the story in this chapter, what we see is an individual making a decision that led to all of these things. I, uh, I heard one guy quip, that this chapter could be titled uh, God's Sovereign Choice Coupled with Man's Stupid Decisions. Like somehow between the two of those things, God's will is unfolding before our very eyes. But God says in this passage that in your womb, there's two nations. And these two nations 
aren't going to follow the pattern that you know as people during this, this day and age. During that day and age, the first son carried all of the benefits, all of the responsibilities. They would get like whatever the, uh, the inheritance was, the first son would get a double portion. And so there was huge benefits for being the firstborn son. And yet God says in this passage that you have these two sons within you. They're going to be two nations, and the older one is going to serve the younger. And I'm telling you this, God, that's God saying that, like, that the pattern that you think is going to happen isn't going to happen according to the normal route, um, the normal way things happen. And so we're, we read, we continue, verse 24, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, for the fulfilled behold, uh, there were twins in her womb, just like God said. Now the first one came forth, super funny. I can't, like, are we all trying to imagine this guy? Like, what does he look like? Uh, like a redheaded puppy or something? I don't know. Uh, afterward, like, he came forth red all over, like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And, like, within the, the naming of the kids, like, there, there's a play on the between Esau and and Edom. It just is like red and hairy, and they're sort of playing off of the guy and his life. So I'm guessing that in our modern day, this is the first person named Harry, which seems like a totally normal name to me now. But when I read this story, it's like, huh, it does seem a little bit funny that they basically hairy, redheaded, like, and it, you don't get the impression it's just a hairy head. It's like his whole body is hairy. And uh, just odd. But so they named him Harry, or I mean Esau. And uh, after his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, uh, so his name was called Jacob, which sort of mean the, means the one who grabs the heel. Very original. Um, it can mean the one who grabs the heel or the one who trips up the other one. And so um, let's see here. After his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. So we see this great distance of time, 20 years from when they got married till their children were born. And as they grew up, in verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. There's a whole lot we could say here. Their personality types were very different. Uh, You have one son who is a, a, a rugged outdoorsman. He, he's a skillful hunter. He was the one that got the, the, the meat for the barbecue uh, as a man. There's a whole lot about this guy that I like. I mean, this is, um, we're going to see that, that Isaac loved his son Esau. Um, like I think about the men who have gone out hunting and brought back meat to me, there's a certain bond. Like, I know that uh, Rick is right there. I can see him. I've eaten elk that he's killed. And our hearts are intertwined because he's given me his meat. And it's like, so it's like when, you, when there are individuals, <laughs> then of course I see Jim, who's a vegetarian, who's now looking at me like, Gunner, you know, <laughs> like, he's like scolding me. Like, I, but he's like this, this rugged outdoorsman. He's hunting. He's doing this stuff. And then we're introduced uh, to, to Jacob, who was a peaceful man. And he liked the indoors, being intense, you know, watching uh, the baking channel with his mom. And, and like, like, 
he was just a very different individual. And, and this is what the Bible says. And then we see that Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. He liked his barbecue, and his, this son is the one who brought him barbecue. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And so we see these distinctions between these two boys, and we see the distinction between the two parents. And first off, last week I had commented that, that, uh, that there isn't anything negative in the Bible that's said about Isaac and Rebekah's marriage and their love for one another. But their love for one another doesn't mean that they're good parents. This interaction between the two of them is going to create all sorts of problems as we go through uh, the story of these two, these two men. Um, this is certainly uh, not parenting advice that's endorsed by Focus on the Family. Uh, these parents, while they love each other and they have a good relationship, their sons are, their interaction with their two sons are going to create some real problems within their family. Uh, and it's just bad judgment as these things unfold. But, but as we see man's bad decisions, somehow in the midst of these bad decisions, God's decree is going to be found right in the middle of these decisions, which is beyond my understanding. And so we, we're, the two sons are described. In verse 29, we see that when Jacob had cooked the stew, Esau came in from the field, so he had been home cooking, preparing food. Um, his brother comes home from the field and was famished. And uh, the English, I don't think, conveys, and I can't even say that, like, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but from all of the commentators, like the language of the Hebrew is just super extreme. L- l- that Esau is just super, super dramatic. In his language, he's famished. He's so hungry, he's going to die. Like if you, I mean, I've been there. Like, like being hangry is real in my world. Like if you're hungry and you've got low blood sugar and you need food, it's like all that you can think of. So Micah went to, he's nodding. He's like fist pumping. He went to Romania last year. And when we were first sitting down to talk, he's like, well, I just have like one question. Is there going to be food? And it was like he was really concerned that there would be food available to him because his, the demands of his body needing calories was a real factor in whether he should go or not go. There was plenty of food. Uh, but it's like, so this brother comes in. He's starving. He's famished. Esau said to Jacob, please like it, the Hebrew apparently is just, let me gobble up some of that red stuff. Like whatever that red stuff is, just let me have some. I don't even care what it is. Please let me have, sw- please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which sort of is, the, 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 there's a word play on the word red. And so uh, Esau, Harry, Edom, red, red stuff because of this bowl of red stuff that he wants. He's acting like an animal in this situation. But Jacob, who is a little bit sneaky himself, said, first, sell me your birthright. Oh, this is extreme. Like, like this is, the, the birthright is a, is, a, is a double portion of the inheritance so I'm not even going to do the math there because it's too confusing. Like, 
I'm trying to think of big numbers. I should have written it down, but it's like whatever they had, it, he would have gotten double. And not only would he have gotten double of the actual amount, but you think about the inheritance. This is like Abraham was super wealthy. All of that came down to the son and now to the two sons. So these are a very, very wealthy family. It's a lot of money, but even most importantly, part of that birthright that he would be selling would be the Abrahamic covenant, which would, which would be transferred to him. And he just makes this rash. He's a little bit hungry. But in the midst of his hunger, he says, behold, I'm about to die. Like, what use is the birthright to me? Like, I'm still hungry. I'm going to die unless I can have some of that. So this birthright is of no value. And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob for like a bowl of soup. It's just like not even a real meal, in my opinion. Like, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and he went on his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. So he surrendered his birthright over a bowl of soup because he was like really, really hungry. And he wasn't really, really hungry. Don't think like somebody who hasn't eaten in a month. Think about somebody who hasn't eaten since breakfast and it's lunchtime. And he's like, he like surrendered all of this stuff that God had promised and entailed, like entitled him to have. The wealth, the Abrahamic covenant, all of this stuff. And he's the one who made this decision to transfer all of those benefits to his brother just to gulp down some of that red stuff over there. And in the Hebrew, apparently, this is sort of painting the picture of Esau like an animal. This master hunter who's so good at trapping animals has now become the animal and is about to get trapped by his brother. And he forfeited his spiritual inheritance to satisfy his physical appetites. And now we might not have like the Abrahamic covenant and we might not have super extreme wealth spiritually that is about to be transferred to us that we uh, sacrifice things for. But in our world today, we certainly sacrifice spiritual blessing to satisfy our physical appetites in the, the now men do this all the time with a, uh, man, I'd say humans with a with a click of a mouse, going places they shouldn't go, doing things that they sh- they know that God doesn't desire them to do to get the immediate physical uh, release, sacrificing spiritual blessing that God has said, "Hey, this is my way. Do things this way." God wants us to have discipline and to trust Him and to seek Him. We see it in the Father Isaac praying for twenty years. Yet in His children, we see this. This surrendering of, of uh, delaying instant gratification for a future blessing. And it's not easy. And when I look at this, like you look at this story and it's just like, okay, so these are two boys that are born. They're kind of fighting like brothers. And the one brother executes a trade with the other brother that, like, if the parents were involved, like in our family, little Titus, like, 
he's always up to getting robbed by his siblings of like, hey, Titus, for like one gummy bear, I'll give you this gummy bear. You give me your whole bedroom or whatever it is. And it's like, like, time out, time out, time out. Like, this is it, guys, Titus, stop. Like, I'll give you a baggie of gummy bears. Like, you don't need to sacrifice everything that you have for this one thing. There's no, like, parental involvement. We just see a super stupid decision, and we see, like, the plan of God hopping from one man over to another man. But if we follow this out to the New Testament, it's fascinating to me that your name could be mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, like there with the great heroes of faith, because Esau's name is there, but he was more like, it's more about his dad than it is about him. But then in Hebrews chapter 12, he's mentioned in, in sort of a bad way. It's like so close, but so far away. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, the author of Hebrews tells us this about this story. We read there, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. So this is sort of like, the, the first point, when the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians today, looking at this story, the first thing that he's talking about is the grace of God, that we are given what we don't deserve. That's God's grace. None of us deserves it. He gives us what we don't deserve and makes sure that you as Christ followers don't fall short of the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by many... Be defi- by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. And so the idea is that he really regretted, like it's, he ate the bowl of soup. And then as soon as he ate it, it was like, ah, what was I thinking? I'm such an idiot. And he was anger, angry with himself and he was sorrowful, but he never really reached the place of like repentance before God and humbling himself before God and doing things God's way. So the writer says, don't be like Esau. Don't fall short of the grace of God. When we look at this uh, the story, it's like, well, what do we do with this passage? Like, how? There has to be something here. And I think when we look at the story in light of like the broader picture of the, of the Bible, God seems to be saying like, like first off, the, the one point is that I, have, like, that I have a hard time navigating is that God is sovereign. He makes decisions. His decisions can't be thwarted. Somehow in the midst of his sovereignty, he allows humanity to have decisions. And it's like people's decisions that they make, good or bad, somehow come into alignment with God's sovereignty. I'm not going to be able to unravel this one. It's not even unraveled in my mind. Like There's just tension there, and I'm okay with there being tension. And so we look at this story right away, and God says, you know what, uh, in Genesis we're told he just explains what's going to happen, that the younger one is actually going to be the one that's over the older one. But then as the story unfolds, if we go to Genesis, or Deuteronomy, excuse me, head over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So as the story unfolds, Jacob is going to become Israel, the nation of Israel. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 7. 
Jacob will become Israel. Esau will become Edom. And these two nations will sort of like mature and develop. Israel, obviously God's chosen nation. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, as the law is being given again, God reminds the Jewish people of why he chose them. And he says in verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all of the peoples. So God reminds the nation, listen, there was nothing special about you. The reason I chose you specifically is because you were the least, not the greatest, that you brought nothing to the table. Verse 8, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to you, to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he continues to unfold, like, listen, what you are, what you are because of God's love for you, not because you have done anything great or you've brought anything to the table. If we go to the New Testament and we look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, you can turn there in your Bibles. Over in 1 Corinthians 1, the story sort of of God doing things opposite of how man thinks they should be done, how our thinking is so much backwards from God's thinking. Over in verse, uh, verse 26, so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So we see again here to Christians, he's saying, God has chosen you. There's this great tension of God's election, his choosing. He has chosen you not because you were great, not because you were special, not because you went to church every Sunday, not because you taught Sunday school, not because you read out of a certain translation or you listen to certain types of songs or that you don't do a whole bunch of things. It's not that what you've done or haven't done that makes you special before God. It's that you are the least, that you brought nothing to the table. All we have is our sin. We can't bring anything to the table with God. We bring nothing. We are in desperation. And the cross ultimately is the greatest picture of this sort of uh, reversed thinking of God, that if you want to be great, you have to become the least. And back up in verse 18, he says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to uh, those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's this whole like economy between Jacob and Esau. It makes no sense. Esau's the stronger one. Esau's the firstborn. Before they were born, God says, you know what? I'm actually the, the younger the least of these, the homemaker one, that one, 
He's going to become the one that all of the promises lie, and that the nation of Israel be born. And they're going to be a, a, a very small people, a people who are always in last place, but God's hand is going to be on them, not to build them up, but to point all people ultimately to him, because it's, it's like what they said about Jesus, what good can come out of Nazareth, out of selecting the king of Israel? They wanted Saul, the guy who was big, strong, uh, mighty, Then they choose as David, the very least of all of the brothers, that God's economy is so much different. When we look at this in Romans, this is probably the last little verse I'm going to look at here about the grace of God. And we have to sort of look at this in Romans. If you want to go to Romans chapter 9, you can or you can't, whatever you want to do here. In Romans chapter 9, do you want to see all those ladies that pulled me aside? I'm like dying hot right now. But they, uh, they like pulled me aside and they're like, <laughs> hey, can you turn on the air? <laughs> oh, Jim, Jim saying no. <laughs> they pulled me aside like, turn off the air. I'm like, I'm going to die. Okay. We'll just shift to a fire and brimstone message here. Um, okay, Romans chapter. Jim's like, I am not getting involved with the ladies. Um, uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. This is like the great section where, again, Romans chapter 9 through 11, probably one of the most like debated sections of Romans, like within Romans, if, if not beyond Romans, like amongst scholars. And within this section, Paul writes about this, this exchange between Jacob and Esau. Um, So Romans 9, verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, that's a key phrase there. These sons, before they were born, they hadn't done anything right or wrong so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, because of him whom calls. It was said of her, the older will serve the younger. Uh, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so we have this, 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 this picture that in the midst of these two sons, God selected one. We see that their choices, like obviously their choices had a direct implication on what happened to them. And I think that the, the, the greater picture of the story is that as we come before God, we come before him dependent on his grace alone. There is nothing that you can do to earn a relationship with God. There's nothing that you can do to sort of to unearn your relationship. Your relationship with him is based 100% solely on the work of Christ and whether you've accepted or rejected that offer of salvation. It's his mercy withholding what we deserve, his grace being poured out on us over this. And it's with that that we're going to end in communion. And so the guys are going to, or the, whoever's coming forward to, to grab the communion, uh, it's going to go out. Um, We 
having supply chain issues. <laughs> it's like the. Well, I'm going to keep talking because the silence has gone too far for me. Um, so where we're going to end is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. And this chapter basically like blasts off to space with, with deep theological truths that, um, that I think embrace so much of the tension that we see in the story of, uh, of Jacob and Esau. Um, and there in, first, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we read, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him. So in this first section, we see these phrases about God's choosing or election or predestination. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ things in the heavens and things on the earth in him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. So these first like 12 verses just speak of the sovereignty of God, his plan, what he's doing, all of these things that he brought forth um, to be done on our behalf, like before we even came into existence. And there's that tension, words like, inheritance, election, choose, like not choosing, election, inheritance, predestination, all of these things are sort of on that one end. And then we come to verse 13, and we read in him, that's Jesus, after listening to the message of the gospel of your salvation. So in light of everything that he said, then we're told that at some point after hearing the message of the gospel, and that's sort of the picture that we hold in our hands, the broken cracker is the broken body of Christ, that the wrath of God was poured out upon him. He stood on the cross or was nailed to the cross as our substitute in our place. His blood was shed. The wrath of God was satisfied by what he absorbed. And the Bible makes it clear that we all have sinned and we all have missed the the mark of God and that Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. Like, none of us brings anything to the table but our sin. And so in verse 13, after like everything that he said about God's choosing, God's election, God's 
uh, inheritance, all of these things that we as believers have, he says, in him you also listening to the message of the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Now we get the other side, that there's a choice to be made, that God did all of this stuff, and it sort of hinges on our response how these two factor together, and there's a whole like range of how Christians understand this, but s- somehow our belief is what actuates the, the truth. And it's not that we've done anything good. I see when I read this passage, when I read the passage of Jacob and Esau, what I read there is God doesn't operate according to our rules. God is God. He can do what he wants to do. It's clear that when Adam and Eve sinned, we as a people were separated from God. And God said, I'm going to fix that. And you're not going to have any input about how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that through this promised Messiah that would come through Abraham, would come through all of these patriarchs, would manifest himself in the person of Jesus, and he would go to the cross, and he would make payment for our sins, I believe, for the whole world's sins. And that we're confronted with this reality. You either are apart from God or you have responded to the grace of God. You can come up with your own ideas, but God says, that's not the game I'm playing. This is the offer that's before you. Is that I've chosen to restore this relationship that's been broken through my son, Jesus Christ, who this cracker, if you're holding one, it was broken on the cross for you. This is a picture of what should have been you on the cross, but that he was there in exchange for you. We have the Jews, which is the picture of the new covenant, this everlasting covenant that it was a once and for all transaction, that we stand secure in Christ. All we can do is be humble, give thanks to God, give glory to God for what he has done through his son. And with that, I'll pray and we can take communion. Father, we do thank you. Father, we thank you that you are a God and we are not. I thank you that your ways confound me at times, that I just simply, I, I, I can't grasp your greatness. I can't grasp how these concepts of, of your election, your choosing, and, and my choice, how, how these two things fit together. But Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of mercy, you are a God of provision. Lord, I know that I am a great sinner. I know the the pull of my flesh. And all I can do before you is thank you. I thank you that Jesus came. I thank you that a sacrifice was sufficient for me. Father, we thank you that by faith in receiving the gift that we have received, the spirit of yours, who convicts us, who leads us, who guides us. And Father, I pray that you would help me to be quick to sense his, his leading, quick to sense his conviction, Father, we pray that you would help us to be a disciplined people that see uh, the end. 
that as we live our lives, we would make the decisions that uh, reap a harvest of, of, of spiritual blessing, that we wouldn't give in to the temptation of uh, just a, a quick satisfaction uh, of our flesh. Father, we pray that you would help us to lean into Jesus all the days of our life. We thank you that your word tells us that no temptation has overtaken us, but that which is common to man and that we have a way out of it. And so, Father, as we take uh, this, uh, this communion today, we pray, Father, um, that you would help us to, to more fully grasp that which Christ has done for us. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for uh, being a God who cares about us uh, deeply. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.